Chapter 14 of The Wild Northland by William Francis Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14. The term fort, which so frequently occurs in these pages, may perhaps convey an erroneous impression to the reader's mind. An imposing array of rampart and bastion, a loopholed wall, or a formidable fortalice may arise before his mind's eye as he reads the oft-recurring word. Built generally upon the lower bank of a large river or lake, but sometimes perched upon the loftier outer bank, stands the Hudson's Bay Fort. A square palisade, 10 to 20 feet high, surrounds the buildings. In the prairie region, this defense is stout and lofty, but in the wooded country, it is frequently dispensed with altogether. Inside the stockade, some half-dozen houses are grouped together in square or oblong form. The house of the bourgeois and clerks, the store wherein are kept the blankets, colored cloths, guns, ammunition, bright handkerchiefs, ribbons, beads, etc., the staple commodities of the Indian trade. Another store for furs and peltries, a building from the beams of which hang myriads of skins worth many a gold piece in the marts of faraway London city. Martins and minks and dark otters, fishers and black foxes, to say nothing of bears and beavers and a host of less valuable furs. Then came the houses of the men. Lounging at the gate or on the shore in front, one sees a half-breed in tasselated cap, or a group of Indians in blanket robes or dirty white capotes. Everybody is smoking. The pointed poles of a wigwam or two rise on either side of the outer palisades, and over all there is the tapering flagstaff. A horse is in the distant river meadow. Around, the great silent hills stand bare or fringed with jagged pine tops, and some few hundred yards away on either side, a rude cross or wooden railing blown over by the tempest, discolored by rain or snowdrift, marks the lonely resting place of the dead. Wild, desolate, and remote are these isolated trading spots, yet it is difficult to describe the feeling with which one beholds them across some ice-bound lake or silent river as the dog trains wind slowly amidst the snow. Coming in from the wilderness, from the rack of tempest and the bitter cold, Wearied with long marches, footsore or frozen, one looks upon the wooden house as some palace of rest and contentment. I doubt if it be possible to know more acute comfort, for its measure is exactly the measure of that other extremity of discomfort which excessive cold and hardship have carried with them. Nor does that feeling of home and contentment lose aught for want of a welcome at the threshold of the lonely resting place. Nothing is held too good for the wayfarer. The best bed and the best supper are his. He has, perhaps, brought letters or messages from long-absent friends, or he comes with news of the outside world. But be he the bearer of such things, or only the chance carrier of his own fortunes, he is still a welcome visitor to the Hudson's Bay Fort. Three days passed away in rest, peace, and plenty. It was nearing the time when another start would be necessary, for, after all, this Athabascan fort was scarce a halfway house in my winter journey. 
The question of departure was not of itself of consequence, but the prospect of leaving for a long sojourn in deeper solitudes without one word of news from the outside world, without that winter packet to which we had all looked so long, was something more than a mere disappointment. All this time we had been traveling in advance of the winter packet, and as our track left a smooth road for whatever might succeed us, we reckoned upon being overtaken at some point of the journey by the faster traveling express. Such had not been the case, and now three days had passed since our arrival without a sign of an incoming dog train darkening the expanse of the frozen lake. The morning of the ninth of March, however, brought a change. Far away in the hazy drift and poudre, which hung low upon the surface of the lake, the figures of two men and one sled of dogs became faintly visible. Was it only Antoine Tarangu, a solitary freeman from the Catrefouche, going like a good Christian to his prayers at the French mission? Or was it the much-wished-for packet? It soon declared itself. The dogs were steering for the fort and not for the mission. Tarungu might be an indifferent church member, but had the whole college of cardinals been lodged at Chippewayan, they must have rejoiced that it was not Tarungo going to Mass, and that it was the winter packet coming to the fort. What reading we had on that Sunday afternoon! News from the far-off busy world, letters from the far-off quiet home, tidings of great men passed away from the earth, glad news and sorry news borne through months of toil fifteen hundred miles over the winter waste. And now came a short busy time at the fort. A redistribution of the packet had to be made. On to the north went a train of dogs for the distant Yukon. On to the west went a train of dogs for the head of the Peace River. In three days more I made ready to resume my journey up the Peace River. Once more the sleds were packed. Once more the untiring surf vola took his place in the leading harness, and the word march was given. This time I was to be alone. My good friend, whose unvarying kindness had made an acquaintanceship of a few weeks ripen into a friendship destined, I trust, to endure for many years, was no longer to be my companion. He came in company with another officer some miles of the way to see me off, and then at Catreforge we parted, he to return to his lonely fort, I to follow across the wide-spreading Lake Mamaway, the long trail to the setting sun. If the life of the wanderer possesses many moments of keen enjoyment, so also has it its times of intense loneliness, times when no excitement is near to raise the spirits, no toil to render thought impossible, nothing but a dreary, hopeless prospect of labor which takes, day after day, some little portion from that realm of space lying before him, only to cast it to augment that other dim land of separation which lies behind him. Honest Joe Gargery never with his blacksmith hand nailed a sadder truth upon the wheel of time than when he defined life to be made up of partings welded together. But in civilization generally, when we part, we either look forward to meeting again at some not remote period, or we have so many varied occupations or so many friends around us that if the partings are welted together, so also are the meetings. 
In the lone spaces, it is different. The endless landscape, the monotony of slow travel, the dim vision of what lies before, seen only in the light of that other dim prospect lying behind. Lakes, rivers, plains, forests, all hushed in the savage sleep of winter. These things bring to the wanderer's mind a sense of loneliness almost as vast as the waste which lies around him. On the evening of the 12th of March, I camped alone in the wilderness. Far as I could reach, on every side, there lay nothing but hard, drifted snow, and from its surface a few scant willows raised their dry, leafless saplings. True, three or four men were busy scraping the deep snow from the lee side of some low willow bushes, but they were alien in every thought and feeling, and we were separated by a gulf impossible to bridge, so that I was virtually alone. I will not say on whose side the fault lay, and possibly the admission may only prove a congeniality of feeling between myself and my train, but for all of that, I felt a far stronger tie of companionship with the dogs that drew my load than for the men with whom I now found myself in company. They were by no means wild. Far from it, they were eminently tame. One of them was a scoundrel of a very low type, as some of his actions will hereafter show. In him, the wild animal had long since been destroyed. The tame brute had taken its place. The man who had been my servant from the Saskatchewan was a French half-breed. Strong, active, and handsome, he was still a sulky, good-for-nothing fellow. One might as well have tried to make friends with a fish to which one has cast a worm as with this good-looking, good-for-nothing man. He had a depth sufficient to tell a lie which might wear the semblance of truth for a day, and cunning enough to cheat without being caught in the actual fact. I think he was the most impudent liar I have ever met. The motive which had induced him to accept service in this long journey was, I believe, a domestic one. He had run away with a young English half-breed girl, and then ran away from her. If she had only known the object of her affections as well as I did, she would have regarded the last feat of activity as a far less serious evil than the first. The third man was a swampy Indian of the class one frequently meets in the English-speaking settlement on the Red River. Taken by himself, he was negatively good, but placed with others worse than himself, he was positively bad. He was, however, a fair traveler and used his dogs with a degree of care and attention seldom seen amongst the half-breeds. Small wonder, then, that with these three worthies who, though strangers, now met upon a base of common rascality, that I should feel myself more completely alone than if nothing but the waste had spread around me. Full thirty days of travel must elapse ere the mountains, that great break to which I looked for so long, should raise their snowy peaks across my pathway. The lameness of the last day's travel already gave ominous symptoms of its presence. The snow was deeper than I had yet seen it. Heretofore, at the longest, the forts lay within five days' journey of each other. Now there was one gap in which, from one post to the next, must, at the shortest, be a twelve days' journey. At dawn on the 13th of March, we quitted our burrow in the deep drift of the willow bushes and held our way across what was seemingly a shoreless sea. 
the last sand ridge or island top of Lake Athabasca had sunk beneath the horizon, and as the sun came up, flashing coldly upon the level desert of snow, there lay around us not but the dazzling surface of the frozen lake. Lac Claire, the scene of our present day's journey, is in reality an arm of the Athabasca. Nothing but a formation of mud and drift submerged at high summer water separated it from the larger lake, but it shores very much from those of its neighbor, being everywhere low and marshy, lined with scant willows and destitute of larger timber. Of its southwestern termination but little is known, but it is said to extend in that direction from the Athabasca for fully seventy miles into the Birch Hills. Its breadth from north to south would be about half that distance. It is subject to violent winter storms accompanied by dense drift, and from the scarcity of wood along its shores and the absence of distinguishing landmarks, it is much dreaded by the winter voyager. The prevailing northeast wind of the Lake Athabasca has, in fact, the full sweep of 250 miles across Loch Clare. To lose one's way upon it would appear to be the first rule of travel amongst the tripmen of Fort Chippewayan. The last adventure of this kind, which had taken place on its dim expanse, had a nearly tragic end. On the southern shore of the lake, three moose had been killed. When the tidings reached the fort, two men and two sleds of dogs set off for the cache. It was safely found, the meat packed upon the sleds, and all made ready for the return. Then came the usual storm. Dense and dark the fine snow, dry as dust under the biting cold, swept the surface of the lake. The sun, which on one of those poudre days in the north, seems to exert as much influence upon the war of cold and storm as some good bishop in the Middle Ages was wont to exercise over the belligerents at Cressy or Poitiers, when, as it is stated, he withdrew to a neighboring eminence and there remained during the combat. The sun, I say, for a time, seemed to protest by his presence against the whole thing, but then finding all protests equally disregarded by the wind and the cold, he muffled himself up in the nearest cloud and went fast asleep until the fight was over. For a time the men held their way across the lake. Then the dogs became bewildered. The leading driver turned to his companion, and telling him to drive both trains, he strode on in front of his dogs to give a lead in the storm. Driving two trains of loaded dogs is hard work. The second driver could not keep up, and the man in front deliberately increasing his pace, walked steadily away, leaving his comrade to the mercies of cold and drift. He did this coward act with the knowledge that his companion had only three matches in his possession, he having induced him to give up the rest to Indians whom they had fallen in with. The man thus abandoned on the dreaded lake was a young Hudson's Bay clerk, by no means habituated to the hardships of such a situation but it requires little previous experience to know when one is lost. The dogs soon begin to wander and finally head for where their instinct told them lay the shore. When they reached the shore, night had fallen, the wind had gone down, but still the cold was intense. It was the close of January, the coldest time of the year, when 80 degree of frost is no unusual occurrence. At such a time, it was no easy matter to light a fire. The numbed, senseless hands cannot find strength to strike a match, 
and many a time had I seen a hardy voyager fail in his first attempts with the driest wood and with full daylight to assist him. But what chance had the inexperienced hand, with scant willow sticks for fuel and darkness, to deceive him? His wood was partly green, and one by one his three matches flashed, flickered, and died out. No fire, no food, alone somewhere on Loch Clare and forty to fifty degrees below zero. It was an ugly prospect. Wrapping himself in a blanket, he got a dog at his feet and lay down. With daylight he was up, and putting the dogs into harness set out. But he knew not the landmarks, and he steered heedless of direction. He came at last to a spring of open water. It was highly charged with sulfur, and hence its resistance to the cold of winter. Though it was nauseous to the taste, he drank deeply of it. No other spring of water existed in all the wide circle of the lake. For four days the wretched man remained at this place. His sole hope lay in the chance that men would come to look for him from the fort. But ere that would come about, a single night might suffice to terminate his existence. These bad nights are bad enough when we have all that food and fuel can do. Men lose their fingers or their toes sometimes in the hours of wintry daylight, but here fire there was none, and food without fire was not to be had. The meat upon the sled had frozen almost as solid as the stone of a quarry. He still hoped for relief, but had he known of the conduct of the ruffian whose desertion had thus brought him to this misery, his hope would have been a faint one. On the day following his desertion, the deserter appeared at the Catrefouche. He pretended to be astonished that his comrade had not turned up. On the same evening, he reached Fort Chippewayan. He told a plausible story of having left his companion smoking near a certain spot on the north side of the lake. On his return to the spot, the sleds were gone, and he at once concluded they had headed for home. Such was his tale. A search expedition was at once dispatched, but acting under the direction of the scoundrel Harper, no trace of the lost man could be found. No wonder, for the scene of his desertion lay many miles away to the south, but the villain wished to give time for cold and hunger to do their work, not for any gratification of hatred or revenge toward his late comrade, but simply because dead men tell no tales. Upon return of this unsuccessful expedition, suspicions were aroused. The man was besought to tell the truth. All would be forgiven him if he now confessed where it was he had left his companion. He still, however, asserted that he had left him on the shore of the lake at a spot marked by a single willow. Again a search party goes out, but this time under experienced leadership and totally disregarding the story of the deserter. Far down, near the south shore of the lake, the quick eye of a French half-breed caught the faint print of a snowshoe edge on the hard-drifted surface. He followed the clue, another print and then another. Soon the shore was reached and the impress of a human form found among the willows. Never doubting for an instant that the next sight would be the frozen body of the man they sought for, since the fireless camping place showed that he was without the means of making a fire, the searchers went along. They reached the sulfur spring, and there, cold, hungry, but safe, sat the object of their search, 
Five days had passed, yet he had not frozen. If I wished to learn more of the deserter Harper, I had ample opportunity of doing so. His villainous face formed a prominent object at my campfire. He was now the packet-bearer to Fort Vermilion on the Peace River. He was one of the worthies I have already spoken of. We crossed Loch Clare at a rapid pace and reached at dusk the northwestern shore. Of course, we had lost ourselves, but the evening was calm and clear and the air was set right by a two hours additional march. It was piercingly cold when, some time after dark, the shore was gained, but wood was found by the yellow light of a full moon and a good camp made on a swampy island. From here our path lay through the woods and ridges nearly due west again. On the fourth day, after leaving Fort Chippewayan, we gained a sandy ridge covered with cypress and saw beneath us a far-stretching valley. Beyond in the distance to the north and the west, the blue ridges of the Caribou Mountains closed the prospect. In the valley, a broad river lay in long, sweeping curves from west to east. We were on the banks of the Peace River. End of chapter 14